Episode 18 of the Buddy Ball Podcast. I'm joined by Miles Kroll, a recent graduate of Temple University's sports management program. Miles and I met at Sports Business Classroom in 2019, and we became fast friends. We sat next to each other most days, and we were both assigned to the Memphis Grizzlies front office for the mock trade deadline exercise at SBC. I brought Miles on today primarily to talk about the current state of the Philadelphia 76ers, his hometown team. After discussing the various roles Miles has held in the sports world, we get into all things Sixers. We start in 2013 when the Sixers traded young all-star guard Drew Holiday to New Orleans for Nerlens Noel, the sixth pick in the draft, and a top five protected 2014 first round pick that conveyed at number 10 the following year. With that trade, the process had begun. We go through years of Miles' Sixers fandom from being the worst team in the league for multiple years, finally making the playoffs in 2018 and ending the season on that amazing win streak, trading for Jimmy Butler and Tobias Harris in the 18-19 season before losing to Toronto in heartbreaking fashion, getting swept by the Celtics in the bubble, and the team's collapse against the Hawks in this past year's playoffs. We end with a discussion about what's next for the Sixers, specifically focusing on Ben Simmons' future with the team and how Miles thinks the Sixers stack up compared to Eastern Conference powerhouses like Brooklyn and Milwaukee heading into the 21-22 season. I had a great time catching up with my friend Miles and picking his brain about the Sixers. Great episode ahead, but first, Chicago! Great to see you, man. How you doing? I'm doing well, doing well. Recently graduated in 2020. Um, really trying to navigate post-pandemic and um, really see where I can fit in in the sport industry. So really excited for future opportunities and I'm happy to be on today. Thanks for being on. That's the place I wanted to start, actually, a little bit about you before we get into the Sixers. Uh, so yeah, I, I know that you recently graduated from Temple sports management major. And I was looking at your LinkedIn and I've seen you post about it on, on Twitter as like the years have gone by, I guess, but you have a lot of really cool, like sports related internships. You've worked with Temple Athletics. You've worked with UPenn Athletics. You work with the Phillies, the Orioles, the Eagles. You volunteered for the NFL draft, the Flyers, the Sixers, ESPN. Like that's so impressive. And I, I obviously know it helps living in or like you know being in philly where there's like all the major sports teams right Right. um so my question there is like not maybe the last position you got but maybe the first one that you got like right when you were starting out college let's say how did you go about that first opportunity like trying to secure it and then what have you learned since then yeah so it's being at temple it was pretty um pretty easy to get some of these positions um, just because they're posted weekly um, in like a, it's like a, uh, I guess you'd say like a briefing called the weekly connection. So they send new opportunities every week, new internships, um, whether that's for junior, seniors, um, and then volunteer opportunities. So one thing that Temple did 
um, in order to graduate, it's actually like a prereq. Um, you have to have, I believe, like 250 industry hours. So uh, this wow. is where all those volunteer experiences kind of come into play. Um, and they all have to, it's essentially when you go to these different um, teams or different events, you have to have somebody sign off on your form that you did a certain activity in order to uh, fulfill those industry hours. And so um, whether my first internship uh, actually was with Temple Athletics and that came from that industry hour experience. So originally I was only supposed to be there for one game and I believe I was supposed to be there for like eight hours. And they thought I did a good job um, just like kind of talking with a lot of our alumni donors. Um, and so they just brought me on for the rest of the season and I got to be credentialed in the stadium. Um, and I was pretty much responsible for helping um, people who like donate a ton of money um, to the Temple Athletics um, clubs and all other teams, things of that nature. Um, they have suites and we can help them kind of set up and uh, essentially just help them out with any questions that they might have. So um, if a trip's going to be covered or do they get field passes for certain games. And so uh, with that experience, that was able to ultimately translate onto different roles going down the line. Um, so once you get that first experience, you're really able to kind of uh, get your foot in the door and kind of start thinking of ways to expand. And I always wanted to um, kind of tailor my internships more towards going um, into the event space rather than working for the team itself. Um, and so that's what I'm kind of looking to do post-grad. I want to work more in partnerships uh, and events and, and whether that's like at an agency or even on the team side as well, that's something that I've always been interested in. Yeah, that was my next question. You you kind of already answered it, but it was just like, what are your career aspirations? It seems like, you know, you've been involved with so many different things. So would you say it's, it, you're more so interested in like the game day experience and like putting all of it together and like that, that kind of part of it more so than like the actual front office side? Yeah, so I've never really been more of the front office type of guy. Um I did for like maybe like I want to say like a month or so kind of think about how it would go to like do like the agency route and then you kind of uh, get in the back of your head you start thinking of the top dogs of the agency so you start thinking about like clutch sports CAA Wasserman Octagon they literally probably have like 90% of the league's players and then you have all your independent agents who are probably family friends or really really smart guys who passed uh, the exam and are certified to do the actual job. Um, and so that not really looking more to um, be an agent, but rather from these agencies, like they have other opportunities to host certain events um, outside of just representing players. So partnership opportunities, partnership activation, um, it's definitely something that I've always been interested in. Like, why are these brands connecting um, their name to, let's just say, like an Xbox event? Like, why why does um, why does like Chevrolet want to do an event with Xbox? Like, what what makes sense behind that, and what are they getting out of that, and how can you make that like the best possible event? You actually bring up a good point. It's probably my biggest takeaway from working at the Players Association in the past seven months. Like, one of my big jobs is 
like reviewing sponsorship contracts and trying to figure out how, you know, deals that sponsors have with NBA teams like affect basketball related income pretty much. But the point that I'm trying to get at is like, I'll, I'll read a contract and I can't really go into specifics here, but let's say Delta airlines is paying X million dollars each year to the Lakers just to have like some signage and, and for Delta to be the official airlines of the Los Angeles Lakers. And I guess I, I knew that like there was always a backstory to like sponsorships and like, you know, like every sponsor or sign that, that you see at, at a sporting event, like is, is planned and it's paid for. And it, you know, it's, it's not all just random, but actually reading through the contracts and thinking about like how much thought, like this is a whole industry within the industry. So I, I thought that was a, great answer and there's obviously a lot of jobs there and, and that's kind of where the that's how sports really generates money um other than you know selling tickets but yeah that's a really insightful answer and honestly not something that i hear of a lot um i i feel like a lot of people are just like go oh, and you know some more naively than others are saying like oh i just want to be the the gm i i want to do that and right. i think as people and it's and you've obviously had so many different experiences in sports so you've seen it firsthand like there's a bunch of different roles and they have to get filled and i don't want to say it's easier to like do what you're trying to do but it's definitely more like the path is a little more linear it's not it's there and there's jobs in there like being a gm you it's it's a lot of luck and then if you if your team loses for a few years you're out of a job so right yeah that's that's really refreshing to hear that you're exploring something within sports that isn't necessarily what you know uh 13 or 14 year old is saying when they're playing 2k like the whole gm aspirations i feel like um a lot of people especially at temple kind of come into the program like expecting to do that um but one thing that doesn't really get covered that much in school is the actual work that goes behind like trying to become a gm so whether that's learning the cba like um you're probably going to talk about sbc at a later point but just learning these different areas um, and different facets of uh, contract negotiation and uh, different areas of that industry that you really have to know and be able to like spit out in like 10 seconds in order uh, to actually do the regular functions of that job. Um, And I don't think you can take any college course on that per se. Like there's not, there's not going to be a lot of professors that can easily teach you the MBA CBA in a semester. It's probably not going to happen. Yeah. And I'm, I'm kind of talking out of two sides of my own mouth. Cause I was kind of shaming the people that want to do that, but that's exactly what I want to do. So I'm being a little hi- hypocritical, but I'd, I'd like to think I've, you know, learned a few things over the, Dude, the years. You, but. You're going to be fine. Like I, I already know, like when, when we were at SBC, like you were absolutely killing it. And like, I'm just sitting there watching you. I'm like, man, I don't know what the hell is going on with all this CBA talk. Like I know a little bit about it and it was cool to learn a little bit more about it. Uh, but definitely just seeing a lot of different people going more in depth with it. I mean, like you were killing the mock trades and uh, things like that. So you're, you're on the right path and you're with the MBPA right now. So you're doing as much as you can. And I really do hope that that works out for you. Thank you. I, it means a lot. I, sometimes I don't like take a step back and think about like what I've actually done over the last couple of years, but it's, yeah, it's, it's been, it's been awesome. Yeah. It's just, I mean, especially with COVID, like times just fly by, but yeah. Okay. I wanted to get into the 76ers now and you're a Sixers fan. You you're from Philly, correct? 
Um, from New Jersey, so I live about forty minutes. Um, okay. Forty minutes outside of Philadelphia. But Temple is is that in Philly? It is right. Yep. So Temple's in North Philly, literally on Broad Street, North Broad. So. Wow. So you've been around the 76ers for a while and you've seen a lot. Uh, so we're going to try to get to the present day Sixers pretty quickly here, but we can't, it, it it's impossible to just go straight to what happened in the 2021 playoffs. And <laughs> I, I think a good place to start is when let's say the process started, which was the 2013 draft. You had Drew Holiday, who I believe was an all-star the previous year. The Sixers mm. had some talent. They'd been in the playoffs a few years beforehand. And they trade Drew Holiday for the sixth pick. And I believe there was a future first-round pick. And that kind of sent signals through the league. Or maybe not that specifically, but that was the start of the Sixers making it pretty clear. Like, we are going to blow this thing up. We are going to start over perhaps more extremely or to a greater extreme than any team had ever done before. So do you, do you remember like what, like what you were doing or like when you heard about that, that drew trade and like, what was your initial reaction to it? That, that you're getting Nerlens Noel, who I think at the time was scheduled to miss a good portion of that coming season. And he did actually miss that, that first year. Yeah. So, I mean, when that trade happened, um, it was like, at the time as a Sixers fan, like you're just kind of like, okay, like they traded Drew, but like, what's the plan behind that? Like, what are we getting from that? And uh, when we, when the Nerlens Noel pick happened, um, essentially like you're kind of looking at a guy who had really, really high upside. Um, He was highly touted coming out of high school. Um, And so like a guy like that, you kind of do want to have on your roster, but you want to see if he pans out as a generational talent. And I think that's what Hanky was kind of banking on. Um, and unfortunately that didn't end up happening, but they also did get that 2014 first round pick, uh, which then ended up becoming a guy who was a very, very big trade asset uh, going down the line. So don't want to spoil too much, but. Yeah. So, and yes, I, I do know who that is. I'll, I'll bring him up at a later point, but then the process happens and it's crazy to think that over let's say the five years from 2013 to 2017 Nerlens was actually the lowest, the, like the lowest first round pick they had, like the, the next four years, it was, it was all higher than number six. Yep. So not, not to jump the gun, but Joel went third in 2014. Jalil went third in 2015. Ben went first in 2016, traded up for faults in 2017. And one thing I wanted to bring up and I, I wanted to get your, your reaction to this. So I actually, spoke or Sam Hankey spoke to a group that I was mm-hmm. a part of at, at Harvard. It was actually like the weekend before like the world fell apart last, last oh, March. Wow. Uh, but he, he came and it was like a Q and a portion and he had kind of vaguely talked about the process, but hadn't really got into it. And I, I stood up and I asked him like you drafted bigs in three mm-hmm. consecutive years, Nerlens, Joel, and Angelo Okafor that you knew that they all couldn't play together. So it was like the epitome of best player available. Right. And he was like, sort of, but my scouts were telling me that there's a decent chance that, that Nerlens becomes Ben Wallace. Joel becomes Hakeem Olajuwon. 
and Jalil Okafor becomes like prime Al Jefferson, maybe something more. And like, if you can get all three of those guys, like they're all tradable, they're all, you know, they're, they're all going to be great. And as it turned out, like only one of them made it one through their, their rookie scale contract. But I, I guess that's the point of picking so high in the draft. So I guess those three big specifically, like, so we, we talked about Nerlens a little, but let's say the next two, you know, high draft picks, Joel and, and jaw, like, what did you think of, or what was your initial reaction to them when, when they were drafted? Yeah. So the Embiid pick was kind of a no brainer. Um, and it's actually kind of crazy now that you think about it, that he fell to third, because I'm pretty sure um, before the draft, if he wasn't hurt, he was going to be like the consensus number one pick. Cause I'm pretty sure that first pick was Wiggins, right? Cleveland. Wiggins and then Jabari Parker. Right. So, yeah. So two guys that, I mean, Wiggins, I guess you can say he's panned out to a fault. Uh, wouldn't say he's a superstar player, but you got that superstar at three. Um, obviously the injury history was a concern for Embiid. So a lot of people, I remember sports talk radio in Philly just saying like, he's probably never going to play here. Um, which I mean, for a season kind of looked very, very likely that that was seasons, probably going to yeah. be the case. Yeah. Like he ends up breaking his foot again and then had to get surgery. So, I mean, uh, there, I mean, it was a great pick and ended up being a great pick, but then in terms of Okafor the next year, like I thought it didn't make sense, especially because like there was other guys in that draft. Um, pretty sure that's the Booker draft, right? 20, 2015. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, Booker went like yeah. 10 spots later. Porzingis was there. There's a few yeah, other guys. Yeah. Bunch bunch of guys in that draft who panned out to be really, really great NBA players. Um, obviously, I don't think you can project Booker to go like in the top three in that draft, but uh, I guess you can say they did take the best available player there. But I also feel like, um, especially now that you can like kind of sit back and take a look at it, uh, Jaleel was literally just too his his game was too old for the league for sure for sure and i remember at the time so i was 15 maybe and mm-hmm. i was jalil over carl anthony towns at every day of the week because i yeah. was like oh my gosh it's post game he's basically tim duncan are you kidding me like towns like they were doing a platoon system at, at kentucky he was playing like 20 minutes a game i was like eh. i and then obviously it's worked out the way that it's worked out so my next question is just like, we've kind of talked about each individual pick, but now kind of taking a step back and thinking about those five years that the Sixers were really, really bad. What was the progression of you buying in or not buying into this thing that was labeled the process? Just being, having kind of intentionally, they would never admit this, but pretty much intentionally putting a uh, inferior basketball team out there to every other NBA team with the hopes that these draft picks are going to work out. And then Joel Nerlens and Ben all missed at least their first year. They didn't play a single game. So you're waiting for these prize draft picks and then they're not actually playing. So take me through what that process, not to be a play on words, but what that process was like for you at, as a Sixers fan watching the process. Yeah, more like watching college basketball, like a psychomaniac. Hope watching a lot of guys in college thinking, oh, maybe he can play here and be a star. So, I mean, during those times, especially like they had problems selling tickets. So you could literally probably go to Wendy's and pick up a ticket to the Sixers game that night. 
Uh, I mean, like it was it was that much of a joke at that time. And I remember our local like rec sports uh, sports leagues were getting tickets like group sales um, to go to games at like a really, really low price. Um, so there was like a few times where they had those type of nights where you can just go to the game and get a bunch to eat. And it was a really, really uh, cheap like family night to have at the arena. And so um, at that point, you're definitely catching up on a lot more basketball going on around the league that's not in Philadelphia because obviously they're the laughing joke of the league. But when the good teams come in, obviously the people show up. So you're still going to get a decent game out of those teams. I remember um, I went to a game during the Warriors 73-9 and season. And basically they were – I think the Sixers were getting blown out in the first half by like 20. And then they came back. Um, and Harrison Barnes hits a game winner at the end of the game. The, all the Warriors walked off like they did something and beat the process Sixers, which is crazy. And I feel like, as we mentioned a little bit earlier, I can keep asking you process questions, but we have to kind of speed up a little bit. So I'm going to quickly fast forward a little bit here, but stop me at, at any point if you have a anecdote or something you want to say. But I'm, I'm really going to summarize this more so than it should be summarized. But they had a lot of players that they picked in the second round or that they got undrafted that really turned into solid NBA players, maybe not with the Sixers, but Rashawn Holmes, Jeremy Grant, Christian Wood, Robert Covington, TJ McConnell are mm-hmm. all right now probably like worth 10, eight to $10 million a year or more. And they all kind of slipped through the cracks. I mean, we'll get into later, like Covington was, was traded, but there was talent there, but Part of it is that I guess I, I, we should touch on this, that Hinky, who was the GM, never saw his process to fruition. There was, it's, you know, the reporting's kind of murky, but uh, my understanding, something that I've heard is that Christian Wood and Jalil Okafor got into like a bar fight in Boston and Sam, I guess like wasn't really disciplining them. And, and there was pressure from the league to, I mean, they were already like, the worst team in the league. And now you Mm -hmm. have this top pick kind of, I don't know the exact story behind it, but he, he did something maybe that he, he should have regretted or that he wouldn't have done the next day. And he wasn't really disciplined. And Sam was supposed to be the one doing that. And it seemed like it was kind of a coup in that he resigned, but it wasn't like he was just, Oh, I'm going to leave. Like there was some, some pressure. Um, But the Sixers moved into a new era, I guess. Um, Joel Embiid in the, 16 17 season finally played a couple of games he played like 30 yes. something games he i mean if he had played a few more he would have won rookie of the year but he played i don't know 30 40 percent of games so he couldn't mm-hmm. really get there um that first but, game i remember the yeah. first game it was amazing mm-hmm. like just watching him out there and he's he's getting his moves off he's scoring um uh, so that that was amazing to see like i remember i was in my dorm room watching that with my roommate and I was like, uh, he might be a superstar. So like, let's see how this goes. And right. um, my, my roommate was a big Sarge fan too. So it was just cool seeing both of them out there together. And then the Fultz pick happens, Reddick signs. And what I wanted to get into before we get into the more present day Sixers is they actually like made the playoffs and won a series in 2018. What I remember from it, and then I, I'd love to hear your stories, is Joel was injured at the end of that year. And the Sixers had a really like kind of easy schedule, but no one was talking yes. about that part. They were just talking yes, about yes, how yes, yes. second year rookie Ben Simmons was just going on a tear. And I think they won like 12 straight games and they 
they vaulted into what were they like the four seed, the five seed? They, they were something. Four seed. And, four mm-hmm. seed. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then so you you go from kind of years and years of being one of the worst teams in the league to, damn, we're playing Boston in the second round. So did it feel like that that quick to you, or did it feel more like gradual? Like okay, finally we're we're here again. I think it was quick because it was like it was a. I want to say it was a complete 180 from the previous year, um, especially like that that 16 game win streak at the end of the season. I don't think it was that easy of a schedule, but like we had Cleveland during during that time. I'm pretty sure we beat up on them in like the first half, and then uh, they came back towards the end of the game. But then I'm pretty sure the Sixers finished that game off um, and like ended up winning by like five or six points. Um, and so that win was like a pretty definitive one during that season where you really are just seeing the guys all come together. You're seeing how Ben Simmons can play with shooters and willful shooters around him. Um, so that was a very, very interesting thing to see and something that definitely um, kind of, you know, kind of revealing itself right now, I'd say, after, especially after this season. Yes, we will definitely – We'll definitely get into Simmons a little bit later. Uh, But the place I wanted to go is what I would consider the start of the modern era of the Sixers when they decided to trade for Jimmy Butler. Uh, Because now it's like, all right, we're not doing this like homegrown talent. Like Covington's a great story. Saric, we were super patient with him. We waited for a few years before he eventually decided to come over like we're trading both of those guys and we're getting an unhappy Jimmy Butler on an expiring contract. And you don't do that unless you think you have a really good chance. And a few months later, they trade Shamit and two firsts for Tobias Harris. And then you, you step back and you go, Holy shit. Like two years ago, this Philly team, like people were injured. It was just another Sixers year. And now you have a five man lineup of Ben Simmons, J.J. Redick, Jimmy Butler, Tobias Harris, and Joel Embiid. Did it ever kind of hit you that, like, oh, my gosh, we probably have the most talented starting five in the league right now? Yeah, so I remember the uh, Tobias trade after that happened. I'm pretty sure it was very, very late at night. It was, like, 2 a.m. when that trade was, like, announced. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I had Woj's, like, um, notifications on on my phone. So I saw, like, the tweet when it happened. And I was like, yeah, the Sixers are going to be pretty good now. So it was just a matter of those guys like meshing together and kind of fitting into the system and figuring out how Brett Brown was going to use those pieces in order to win. Um, And for me, I've never been very, very high on Brett Brown. And I can speak about that all day, um, just in terms of the ways that he wanted to run the the offense. Uh, He didn't like running pick and roll a lot with Ben or any of the guys. Uh, which kind of hindered once Tobias got there. So one of the ways that um, kind of factored in going into the playoffs as well. So so you mentioned the playoffs, which is where I want to go to next. Uh, they beat the Nets in the first round, and this was pre-KD Kyrie Nets. It was still the nice homegrown Nets, uh, mm. similar to the Clippers before they got their two stars. But anyway, so they, they beat the Nets, and then they play the Raptors. And super hard fought series. And you obviously know where I'm going to go with this, this shot in on the right baseline by the Toronto bench, Kawhi Leonard, a bunch of bounces. It goes in 
at the buzzer to win a series. I don't know how many times that's ever happened. Uh, and I've, I've watched the video at least a hundred times. I don't know how, how much you can watch it without being pained, but it's like specific moment. Like I'm sure you remember where you were and just the heartbreak you'd felt. So I don't want to make you too emotional, but as much as no, you want to talk about fine. that, I'd love it's to fine. hear it. Yeah. So I was actually here. I was at home. Um, we were all in the living room. It was me, my parents, and my brothers just watching the game. Um, and obviously, there's what like two seconds left on the clock, and Leonard gets the ball. He's smothered by Simmons, just running towards that right baseline. And Bede also pops up, and Embiid gets really good pressure on him. Uh, and he shot the ball high, so I thought it was going to be like an air ball, just based off the trajectory of the shot. And then once it hit the rim and took that first bounce, I was like, oh, God. And as the bounces continued to happen, I was like, yeah, it's over. And I just kind of fell to the ground. And I was just like, yeah, it's, uh, it's not looking good for the offseason. That's immediately – that was my first thought uh, going into the offseason because the way that series was coached, we probably should have won in six games. Right. And, yeah, so let's, let's move on from that. I, I don't want to have you <laughs> – live any more pain but you did hit on the next thing that i wanted to bring up so there were i think this the series was bigger than just oh the sixers lost in the second round for the second consecutive year as i mentioned the two guys that they gave up legitimate assets to trade for were both mm-hmm. on expiring contracts and jimmy in that toronto series like really took over he was the primary ball handler and it relegated simmons to the dunker spot and he just wasn't really doing much. And, you know, that's fine if Jimmy Butler continues to be on your team, I guess. But he, I, you know, I think there's, in a couple of decades, he'll, he'll write a book and tell us what actually happened. But, you know, there's varying reporting on why he wanted to leave. But he goes to Miami, which he seems happy about. JJ got an offer from New Orleans. But so they, they bring back Josh Richardson in a sign and trade. And then yeah. weirdly... I, I, I guess I was kind of high on it at the time, but looking back on it, like, I just don't understand it at all. They gave Al Horford in his like early to mid thirties, this four-year contract with like a hundred million dollars. And the, what people were saying at the time was, you know, Al Horford has always been a power forward. He's just been forced to play center. Mm-hmm. He can shoot. And, and you're, you're going to get 48 good minutes at center because the big problem is Embiid didn't have a good backup. So the thought was there. And they re-signed Tobias to a huge contract. It was like five, five years, 180 million. And that's your team. So in that moment, and I'm, was that the summer? Yeah, that was also the summer that they signed Ben to a five-year the, max the extension. Yeah. extension. So that then, then you kind of realize like, all right, so we're paying, well, at the time, Horford and Bede, Simmons and Harris were all on max contracts, all kind of like big guys that, aren't your, you know, prototypical like creator guards and hadn't gotten to a conference finals yet. You committed so much money to those four. So were you confident in that 1926ers team or did did you kind of see that there was something a little weird about it? No, I mean, I was going into that season, like I'm pretty sure everybody in the city was excited about that team, especially like when you're listening to like the talk sports radio and all that, like everybody was very, very bullish going into that season about the Sixers, especially for me, like when they made the Horford move, I thought it was an amazing idea because he was the only person 
of the past like four seasons that would literally give Embiid fits in the paint outside of like Marcus right. mm-hmm. And so like it's like taking that factor out of the East and kind of putting him on your team. So not necessarily out of the East, but you know what I mean by that. Um, just really could help the team in a way. Um, it's just, again, a way of a coach using the pieces um, properly. And I feel like that was not executed during the season. Uh, I did go to a few games that year and it, all the games were kind of weird, especially being up close and as close as I was to the court. So, so the season's kind of hard to analyze. They were having a pretty good year, I guess. Well, no, they, they were the sixth seed in the East, but like the top six were mm-hmm. all pretty close. And, you know, they were in the bubble. Simmons got injured, get swept by the Celtics. People didn't read too much into that. It's like, all right, we're in this weird year. But they fire or Brett Brown is no longer the coach. And you've kind of hinted at it. So I I wanted to give you the floor a little bit. Give me your 30-second rant with as many swear words as you want about Brett Brown. (laughs) I don't don't think I can use any swear swear words because he was a a good guy at the end of the day. It's just... It's just I feel like he was the coach for the process for a reason. Um, And once like once things started happening and we kept getting to the second round and losing and you're not learning from these certain issues. Like um, I remember there was a few playoff games where we're up by a lot and the team's starting to make a run. He doesn't call a timeout. He's just going to let it happen. And like there, those were certain things that used to irk me a lot about uh, Brett Brown. And then the other thing was just not running any type of pick and rolls for Simmons um, in order to kind of get him downhill and kind of like playmaking a little bit more. Um, So you'd have Simmons kind of relegated to that dunker spot and just standing there in the corner doing absolutely nothing um, when he's not really a factor on offense like he's supposed to be. I think that's a good way of summarizing it. And you, you did bring up a good point that like, yeah, he was the coach for the process. And there's a reason why a lot of these teams have a coach it's not that the coach was a bad coach, but the coach just has a more developmental role and it's just not appropriate. I mean, I, I liked Kenny Atkinson, but like, you know, I, I think that Steve Nash is a better fit with the current iteration of that Nets team. Um, so I, I think that's just something that kind of happens in the league and sorry for Brett, as you mentioned, he seems like a great guy, but yeah, just, but you get doc who it's, uh, it's, weird to think about that if, if they don't have that collapse to the nuggets, it, I mean, he still might be the Clippers coach. So, mm-hmm. but that's how, that's how the league works. Um, but in addition to getting doc also get Daryl Morey, who I, I guess I'll stop there. Like, wh- what did you think when you heard like, wow, we're getting, you know, Daryl Morey, who's seen as, I don't know, there's a lot of different takes on him, but I would say one word to describe him as like innovative. And he always is hunting for that next star. So like, were you pretty excited when, when they got Daryl? Yeah, when we got Daryl, I thought we were getting GM Jesus. Like, <laughs> it's it it was crazy the the way things kind of panned out. Um, in terms of like in that like two three week span, we get a new coach who's had experience, finals experience, um, finals experience as much as you would like to say. But I mean, um, we finally have the replacement for Brett Brown and then you finally get your new GM who is very very experienced and literally turned the Houston Rockets um, from this small market team um, with basically I guess you can call a Harden a homegrown superstar because you kind of had to find a guy like him in order to uh, in order to get that type of product Um, you turn them into like a three-point shooting juggernaut type of team in the west 
Um, and so they were, what, one game from going to the finals and Chris Paul's like injury kind of um, hindered that. So I was very, very high on that move. And I think that the moves that he definitely made going into the 21 season, uh, he's he's been great. So, yeah, that's that's what I wanted to hit on next. He really did not hesitate to start turning over the roster. It was like he gets in. All right. We're trading Richardson in the 36 pick for Seth Curry on a really good contract. At the time, I was like, wow, that's it's amazing. I mean, yeah. Curry's even cheaper. And I get that Curry had a great year. Richardson did not have a great year. So in retrospect, the trade looks even worse from the Mavericks perspective. But that was a great trade. And he's like, well, I don't feel indebted to Horford. I didn't give him this contract. I'm going to send him to Oklahoma City. And, you know, they, it's a future first that they gave up, like years down the line. But it wasn't just a salary dump. You got Danny Green, who was a starting level player. And it's like, boom, we have two starters, two good shooters. And we're right. sticking with our other three guys. Draft Tyrese Maxey, Thibel was coming along, some other guards in the in the rotation. And you felt pretty good about this Sixers team. And for the most part, they look good all year, uh, which is what I wanted to get into next. I mean, the East, they they actually did it. They set themselves up in such a great position. They're the one seed, home court advantage throughout, Milwaukee mm. and Brooklyn on the other side of the bracket. And it wasn't even like a Miami got to the four or five, so they would have to face them in the second round. You're looking at it and you go, Wizards, Hawks with home court <laughs> advantage? Like, let's do this thing. I, I, I don't care. Like, whoever's going to get out of the other side is probably going to be a a seven game series and you know that <laughs> didn't happen um walk me through the emotions of that hawk series uh okay so i was actually at game five uh, which i think was the biggest red flag in that entire series so uh sixers were up i believe 26 points um and literally blew that lead within 10 minutes of going into the third quarter. So basically once, once, um, once like 10 minutes passed in the third and they got the lead to like 10 points, I'm pretty sure Lou Williams was just going off at that point. And doc didn't like doc had no answer. He wasn't making any type of adjustments and they were hunting Seth Curry on uh, like every offensive possession. And so um, they kept everybody on the bench a little too long um, and that, again, that was one of my other gripes with Doc is that he wanted to keep running seven guys out there um, and two of which who basically had no playoff experience. Um, but at the same time, like there's literally nobody out there that we can literally trust on the court on our bench because they were just so inconsistent. And so um, at times, like you're kind of really just thinking, like, are we really about to lose this series to the Atlanta Hawks who are like at this point, like they, they weren't even supposed to be in that position and they kind of lucked into uh, McMillan kind of coaching them up. And obviously when you have a young team who is coached up and have a lot of confidence, um, they feel like they can be anybody. And then you have that moment where Trey young in game seven hits a dagger shot from like 35 feet. And you're just kind of sitting there. Like, I can't believe we're in this position again. So the way that I laid it out is obviously the, you know, depressing way to look at it, that home court advantage opposite side of the Nets and the Bucks in the bracket didn't even get to the conference finals. But looking at it from the other direction, I wanted to suggest, you know, looking at it in a more positive way and see whether you 
you know, think that this is going too light on the Sixers organization, but first year coach, at least with the Sixers, first year executive with the Sixers, like mm. lead, lead executive, your best player is playing on a torn meniscus. Danny green is not available for that Hawk series. And I think something happened with Seth, Seth Curry. I don't know if he missed a game, but I, I think there was something. It was like an ankle. Yeah. He had like right. a tweaked ankle. Right. So does any of that resonate? Do you think any of that is even a somewhat justifies what happened or do you go like, well, injuries always happen. Like this was our shot and, and we blew it. I mean, I feel like the best chance at the championship was definitely this season. So, I mean, Embiid's, Embiid's ankle, I mean, his knee, I'm sorry. Uh, honestly, like he's had knee problems in the past and, He's, he had that freak injury in Washington, which basically set his MVP season aside. Uh, I believe that if he stayed in for the rest of the year and continued to put up the numbers that he was getting, he probably would have had a really, really good shot at um, yeah, being close. I mean, close. I just, just to cut in a little bit, Jokic is far and away my favorite player. But if Embiid had stayed healthy the whole year and, and I had a vote, I would vote for Embiid. When when Embiid came back, I, 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 did, I was in the Jokic camp because I was like, this guy's playing every game. Jamal Murray got injured right. and they're, they're still playing great. But yes, I would agree that if Embiid stays healthy or at least doesn't miss that extended chunk, he would have my vote for MVP. So you're, you're right. He was the most dominant player in the league this, this past year. Yeah. And so also like with Danny, um, what was that? Like a calf injury that he, that he got in the playoffs. Like, like that's, that. yeah. that's just like a freak injury that happens. And then Curry's ankle, um, he, he really gets hurt, but that, I don't think that really factored into anything. I mean, he had two 30-point games um, and was playing really good basketball in that second round. And so I do think that this year was definitely the championship window that kind of got away. Um, it would be interesting to see what happens next season, especially because we have a very big elephant in the room that needs to be addressed. Um, and so... We'll, we'll really see what's going to go on from there. Yeah, that's what I'm going with next. Simmons was, I'll let you describe what he was like in that this year's playoffs. Uh, he, I don't know. It wasn't like he had some good games. Like he was having a bunch of assists. He was close to triple doubles in a bunch of games. But when it really mattered, you could tell. You don't need to be watching sports your whole life to tell. He had stage fright he didn't want to have the ball in big moments that obviously that that you know dunk that he passed up in the past to a bad free throw shooter and thigh ball that turns into a i think he missed both free throws or he, he at most made one free throw like that was kind of the moment that sealed you know the media or the the public's kind of opinion on simmons but what do you think went wrong for him in this playoffs and is it as bleak as some people you know, are, are saying that it is for his future. I, I, I think that he has a mental block um, that he hasn't really kind of addressed uh, with anybody yet. I feel like the, the biggest issue with him is him not understanding that he is a six ten freak of nature. Who's one of the fastest players on the court can defend basically one through five. Um, and kind of affect the game in ways that others can't. Um, and the only thing that's holding him back from being mentioned in 
like a lot of these in, in a lot of different breaths is like a lot of the great players that ever play the game is his shooting ability, which he literally has no confidence to even take a jumper when somebody's standing 15 feet away from him. And so even when he's at the free throw line, like you can see in his face sometimes that like when, before he shoots the ball, it's not going in. And it's kind of, it's kind of interesting to see like in person, um, because when you watch his pregame warmups in person, the ball kind of spins this way instead of the regular shooting, uh, Mm -hmm. regular shooting motion. And so it's, it's one, a mechanical issue, I think, uh, two, a lot of people have suggested that he shoots with the wrong hand, uh, which Kevin I O'Connor mean, champions that theory. Yes. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I, I can see it, it, especially the way the ball rotates when it comes out. Uh, but I, I think it all comes down to confidence because I mean, you see a guy like Giannis, basically the same body type as Ben Simmons um, and just as fast, just as athletic, and Ben just doesn't impose his will like a guy like Giannis. And I feel like until he real like until he realizes that, then his career is kind of just gonna be a shell of what he's supposed to be. And I mean, when we drafted him, we thought we were gonna get the second coming of LeBron, and that's what people were expecting him to be coming into uh, Philly. So there's obviously been a lot of trade talk with Simmons. And one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on before the draft is I think there's a decent chance that like, I wanted to get this podcast up while he was still a 76er. So hopefully I can do that. Uh, but just in terms of what you'd as a Sixers fan be looking for in a return for Simmons, first of all, would you agree that his value is at an all time low? Uh, not necessarily um, because you do have to take into consideration like all of the accomplishments that he has in his career. Um, so he has the all-star appearances. He has um, first team all defense. You could argue that he should have been the defensive player of the year this season. Um, and so he, he was also a guy who won rookie of the year. And so you've, you have a guy who on on a piece of paper, if you were to give me a piece of paper and not mention who that guy was and say, we, we would like to trade him for a star player, I'd probably say yes, depending on who that player is. Like when a casual person like looks up his contract and goes, oh my gosh, he's making $33 million next year. It's 40 in the final year. Well, the reason why it's higher than a 25% max is that he made all NBA in the 2020 mm-hmm. season which made it, I think it's 28% of the salary cap uh, instead of 25. And so th- like that's, he, he's not expensive because they, you know, it was like a Wiggins situation. Like Minnesota didn't know what to do. And they're like, oh, I guess we'll give Wiggins this huge, huge contract. Like he's really expensive because he made an all NBA team in his, on his rookie scale contract still. Right. So you're, you're right. There is value there. And we've, we hit on the, the end of that 2016 or 2018 season when he, when Embiid wasn't there and he had shooters around him and he looked great. So I guess, yeah, focusing more on the Sixers now in a, in a Simmons trade, what the Sixers are getting back. First of all, what are you looking for? And second of all, what do you think is realistic? Well, I think everybody knows what the Sixers are looking for in return for Simmons. And that's, 
a star caliber player who can score the basketball because we were obviously lacking that one guy who can get us more than eight points per game in a playoff series. And so uh, you obviously want a guy who's out there who can perform in the clutch as well. Um, And so that kind of leads you to Dame and CJ, uh, which are like the two uh, super big prizes, I guess you can say that could happen in a Simmons deal, just depending on however Portland wants to play that out. Um, But then also a guy like Beal, who's kind of unhappy in Washington right now. Um, And it could be an interesting dynamic, especially um, in Philly, because him and Embiid have the same trainer. And maybe that kind of works out for for those two guys and and their bond. And maybe they can um, kind of mesh together really well and kind of lead this team to a championship. So it should be interesting to see how it plays out. You mentioned Portland, which I think is fascinating because I would assume that a Simmons-McCollum trade has been discussed, and it seems like, I don't know, both teams get what they need. Portland's terrible defense, and they get a like a perennial defensive player of the year. Philly needs people who can shoot and shot creation, and McCollum is that. They both make pretty much the same money. Boom, send it into the league. But first of all, I think Portland is a little concerned based on what they saw in the 2021 playoffs for Simmons and Philly. I mean, you're selling on you're selling your big asset that you have. And another point I wanted to make is and this is more the long game. I don't know if Philly is thinking about this, but as soon as you trade Ben Simmons, you're out of the Damian Lillard sweepstakes. If that ever becomes a thing, especially if you trade with Portland So there is some, I would hypothesize some strategy where like, Hey, let's wait on this CJ trade. Let's, let's not pull the trigger and let's let Simmons rehab his trade value. Let's keep him on the roster. And then potentially you can trade for Dame that could backfire because then if it doesn't work out, you don't have CJ or Dame. And let's say Simmons, like he just can't get over this mental block. And then you're just, I don't want to say stuck with Simmons with Simmons, but a trade never materializes. So do you buy into that theory at all? Yeah. So I feel like um, basically something's either going to happen before the draft or during the draft, or they're just going to wait until the trade deadline happens. Uh, Because right now uh, for Simmons, there's not really that many viable worthwhile options that we can get. And so I feel like it would be beneficial for him to kind of rebuild his trade value, especially if he's going to do the clutch sports thing and kind of try and force his way out if we do end up keeping him. And so if that if that's the case and he wants to kind of, uh, you know, control his trade destination and we can find a viable deal with a star player in return, maybe that happens. But uh, in terms of that, like it, it really is uh, right now just a waiting game. And I know that Daryl Morey is shooting for the stars. Like that Toronto trade proposal was kind of insane. Um, and I think uh, Masai Ujiri should just block his number immediately. <laughs> but I do understand where that comes from in terms of trade negotiations and trying to, you know, kind of see where you're at and see where his value is. I wanted to go back a little bit because I, don't remember if I ever asked you about this or saw you tweet about it, but I assume you had an opinion about it. So Philly was rumored as the finalist with Brooklyn to land James Harden. 
Yeah. And it was rumored that the deal was, I think, Simmons, Maxi, Thibault, and potentially Picks as well. And it seems like Houston, in the end, didn't want to take on a big contract. They just wanted a bunch of picks and be able to kind of build their own way. Um, and a lot of people didn't agree with that because you're like, well, you're hoping that that pick turns out to someone like to be someone like Ben Simmons. So why don't you just take Ben Simmons? But were you in favor of that trade and kind of putting all of your ammo in to get Harden? I was definitely in favor of that trade, but I would do it without Thibault in the package. Um, essentially, like because if you do that, you're basically losing all your defense, especially right. when Harden comes like that. That would kind of be it would just be the Sixers offense versus whoever. Um, and that's something that you definitely don't want to see come playoff time. And so I feel like Thibault, he does play with the reckless abandon sometimes, but he's definitely proven in year two that he is a guy who can cause fits for some of the best players on the court. And so, I mean, that does give him a ton of trade value, but I did want Harden um, here at the deadline. Like I was kind of praying for it and it didn't happen. So place I wanted to end with is just what is your prediction on what happens this off season? And the reason why I'm asking is because if you're right, then we can share this everywhere and be like, miles got it right. And if you're wrong, I don't think anything really happened, but um, you know, 28th pick Simmons and trade talks, Harris under contract for three more years and beats obviously going to be there. So what do you think is going to happen this off season for the Sixers? Yeah. Simmons goes nowhere uh, during the off season. They're going to trade that 28th pick. I really don't think they need to do anything with it. Um, I think as for Tobias, he stays put. I feel like he's, he's still a great piece for the team. Um, he had a poor playoffs, just missing wide open layups. But outside of that, I mean, he's, he was a borderline all-star this year and that's all you can ask, especially on that type of contract. And with Embiid, uh, I think that they really start to look into whether they want to offer him that super max that's going to eventually come up because he's starting to get towards that, um, second half of his prime. And so it's going to be kind of interesting to see how they want to move with that, especially because he's a big with multiple, multiple injuries. And uh, that should be another piece of drama in Philly sports history that could be talked about for a very long time. I've been doing some research on that uh, for someone. I can't really say anything more than that, but yes, Embiid is super max eligible. Yeah. He can right now tack on four additional years to his two years left. He'd be one of the highest paid players in the league by the end of it. And it would take this amazing player who is also injured quite often through his age 33 season, he'd be making over $50 million. Yeah. And okay. The, the place I'll end with is you mentioned that you're fearful that, you know, this was Philly's chance. Mm. This was their window and it closed. Milwaukee's the defending champs. Brooklyn is looking forward to finally having a year where all, all the, all three guys are in training camp. They hope we stay healthy. You know, the Hawks have this confidence that is probably un unwarranted, but you know, you have, you have other teams like the Celtics are probably going to be pretty good. Um, so how do you think, and obviously you don't know what's going to happen, but, but let's say they, they do kind of what you just said, like they keep Simmons, they trade 28th pick for like a marginal upgrade, like a rotation caliber player. And 
it's kind of running back with a similar team. How do you think Philly stacks up compared to those teams next year? Yeah, I think they honestly regress back to a three seed. So um, I, th- I feel like the Bucks know kind of what they are now. Um, I think Giannis has finally figured it out um, in terms of what he's capable of. And I feel like he's about to have a really, really special season next year. Um, and in terms of the Nets, they're obviously going to be great. I mean, you don't even need all three on the court at one time to win games. Um, and so that should be interesting to see from that perspective. But I really do think that Philly falls back down to that three spot. Uh, we still get over 50 wins, but um, it's going to it's gonna be a little bit of a rough road. And I feel like there's going to be a little bit more drama this year, especially if they don't do anything with the Simmons situation in the offseason. So obviously coming into media day, that's probably going to be a circus. And uh, we'll see what happens from there because – Again, Philadelphia sports is always something that um, is always in the eyes of the media of what's just one of the worst cities to play in, apparently. And the fans, uh, the fans are terrible. So we'll, we'll see what happens in Philly with that. I think it's pretty telling that we just talked about the Sixers for 45 minutes, everything they've done over the last eight years. And I think I said the name Fultz once, but that's, a, that's another entire well, podcast. But it just... Oh yeah, he's he's on your sh- shirt. So this shirt that I'm wearing was from, I believe, the start of the 2018 season. Right. So this this yeah. was a this was a free promo shirt that they gave away, um, basically on all the seats for the first game against the Bulls. And so literally everybody who's on this shirt is no longer on the team except for Ben Furcon and uh, Joel. Yeah, just God. just yeah, insane that's a trip to think down about. memory lane. Landry, <laughs> Rocco, JJ, yep. Amir Johnson. Gosh, wow, it's a lot. A lot has happened in Philly, and we didn't even get to talk about the Zaire Smith trade. And I, and oh, I can yeah. talk that's, about that all day, but <laughs> that's a story for another, another thing. Yeah, okay. We we might have to do part two of this Sixers pod once we see what they do with the offseason, and we can get into the. Zaire Smith trade, the Fultz trade, all that. But thank you, Miles, so much for coming on. I, I thought this was a great episode. Hopefully, it'll I'll, I'll get it out before the draft when people are really thinking about this kind of stuff. And yeah, I thought you were super insightful. You gave like the, you know, like a raw, honest, you know, view of what it's like to be a fan who's kind of gone through so much in let's say the last eight eight years with the Sixers. But yeah, thank you so much, man. Yeah, for sure. Anytime. Let me know if you want to do a part two.